listening to a, can you hear me in the back? Listening to a Dharma talk is rather different, at least supposed to be, than let's say listening to a lecture or a public talk. It's not simply gathering some information, which can be useful, of course, and some ideas, perhaps new ones, and it evokes agreement, disagreement, and so forth. It can be stimulating. You can learn something. But first and foremost, it's an exercise in mindful listening. Now, what you do inside your own head, of course, is your own business. We'll never know. But very often, this is having been where you are, uh, what a finally, some words and a break from sitting and walking. And, you know, your posture, we don't uh, suggest that you sit upright and all that. You can relax and it's a fun thing to do. Of course, it depends on the talk. But it's designed to be another expression of our practice, relaxed, but also uh, listening. Now, in order to listen to what's being said, to really listen, the art of listening is a highly refined art. Uh, You have to listen to your own mind, your own heart, as you listen to whoever is speaking. Because one of the ways in which you learn about how to listen is you see how you don't. I mean, we all appear as if we're very practiced at looking as if we're listening. But inside, uh, even if we sincerely want to listen, we hear an idea and then the mind is off and running and we catch every other sentence or something of that sort. Um, What I'd like to do this evening is uh, to begin to sketch out, to frame what we mean by meditation as a way of life rather than a collection of techniques, forms, uh, reserved for special places, special times, uh, often requiring special clothing and hairdos (laughs) and special people who do the teaching. Prior to, let's take this form, which Michael and I value very much. I'm sure you've gotten that from Michael's remarks, and we've been doing it for a long time, and believe it or not, still love it. Um, It is special. Look at this special uh, form. Uh, And what correct action is here is, in many ways, the reverse of what it is when we're home. We maintain a lot of silence. We don't use any gadgets. Uh, Relationship is kept to a minimum. I mean, of course, we see each other and the mind makes judgments, but we're not engaged in conversation or anything of that sort, and so forth. Uh, Things are done more slowly, more carefully. We, We give an encouragement to do so. But prior to IMS and all the forms like IMS that have existed for thousands of years, thousands, long before the Buddha, since Vedic times in India, and you could say in all the ancient cultures in their own way, 
prior to these special forms designed to cultivate certain human qualities of mind and heart, is life itself. This is one form of life. That's what it is. It's a human arrangement. Human beings made this up. The Buddha didn't drop it from some cloud. We made it up. It's a little different in Asia. We got it a little bit in Thailand, a little bit in Burma, Korea, Japan, India, and so forth. Uh, and in different versions of it exist to this day in different parts of the world and have existed for a long time. And it's, it's a, an expression of human ingenuity, an attempt to cultivate certain qualities, learning. It's a, a wisdom path that we're trying to convey here. Learning how to live wisely. It's the art of living. And we have, it's like any other art. It has to be learned. Uh, and you have to keep practicing it and doing it and making mistakes and correcting the mistakes and so forth. So um, when I say framing this, what I mean is, um, in one sense, this is special. Uh, those of you new may not think so, but let's say if you take to it, at a certain point, you'll see that there are certain things that are, are easier to accomplish here than anywhere else. I don't mean literally IMS. I mean these kinds of situations which are protected, where you have the company of like-minded people, where everyone is rowing in the same direction. So it is special. But the problem, uh, for example, in the Buddhist world, uh, the Dharma has been primarily controlled, directed, influenced, protected, kept alive by the monastic community through all kinds of wars and illness and all kinds of things. So it's been kept alive by monastics and the teaching of necessity has that kind of coloration to it. Now, uh, if you go to a Buddhist monastery, and they vary there a great deal one from the other, but let's say the ones in this lineage, the forest tradition is the one Michael and I know best in Thailand mainly, and it's some in Burma. Um, if you go there, they have a different kind of life. So what is correct action there for them, which has been designed, uh, some of it has been left by the Buddha, it's been modified over centuries, and they have ways of relating to each other within the monastic routine. They have ways of eating, ways of dressing, etc. Uh, some of the guidebooks or the um, manuals have hundreds of rules that are designed to help people live together in harmony, to correct their faults when they see them, to encourage them to see them in the first place, and I think are designed to optimize getting free. Learning how to live is how to get free of ourselves. We're the ones who are blocking ourselves. You don't have to agree with this. This is the view uh, of these, this style of teaching. We're our own best friend, potentially, and our own worst enemy. And it's all living in the same body right here. Uh, so for, if you're right for it, if you, the monastic life can be wonderful. And uh, some of the people who are there really flower by living that style of life. But however it's come to be, in the 21st century, here in the United States and Europe, and it's really starting to spread all over, lay people 
are taking on, uh, taking on a role in greater numbers and with depth and sincerity and real effort and real concern, real interest. Um, that perhaps has never existed before, or if it has, I'm not aware of it. There have always been lay people who have sincerely and seriously practiced. But they've been within the context of a monastic uh, reign. And so a lot of the teachings of necessity are shaped by the a monastic worldview. And many of the teachers I've had who've been monks, uh, who've really cared about lay, lay life, about what we do is called lay life, for those of you who are new. Uh, I myself don't like the term. Did you know I'm a layman? Uh, it's just life, as far as I can tell. And uh, I've had a number of very well-meaning, sincere teachers who've had real depth, and they certainly seem to have taken good care of their own life. Um, but some of the advice has not been appropriate, not been helpful in terms of work, relationship, the kinds of uh, suffering, the kinds of joys, the kinds of challenges that those of us who do have a relationship, sexual, for those of us who do have a job, for those of us who can direct what we eat. Take a simple thing like eating. Well, here it's a little closer to the way it is in a monastery. You don't have a huge number of choices. But when you go home, you're in charge of what you, what you eat. Whereas, uh, let's say, in the forest tradition, and at the time of the Buddha, let's use that as a frame of reference, um, you would go on an arms round, and you would go with your bowl, and people would do donate food to you. That's how you ate. And you only ate one meal a day, and you ate what you were given. So I don't think they could decide that I'm going to be vegan and not eat, uh, uh, what is it, glutinous, be non-glutinous. Uh, or I'm going to be vegan, over vegan, lacto. <laughs> I don't think they had that choice. I've been vegetarian for over, for over 40 years. But when I got to Thailand and I saw that if I insisted on being vegetarian, I would be very sick or they'd carry me out in a box because uh, I would eliminate a lot of the necessary nutritious food. So I dropped it. And I ate fish and chicken. And later on I found out I ate some very rather nourishing insects I didn't know at the time. <laughs> um, and I'm here to tell the tale. Uh, but when I get home... I have all these choices to make. And it's the same with clothing. It's the same with handling money. It's the same with earning our own living. It's a very different life in the modern world. And now things are changing rapidly. So we need a way of life that is appropriate for us. Whatever you want to call us, lay people, people. We need a way of life that takes into account every aspect of life. So when Michael said that it's we're trying to convey that at the first evening. And uh, as the retreat picks up, we only have five days, but we'll do our best to convey a certain perspective. What I'd like to, by framing it, I mean, this is part of life. When, often when retreats end, and by the way, as I look around, uh, I see some people who've been coming, you know, I know from over 20 years, 25, even 30 years, uh, 
you've heard all my stuff. Pretend you're interested. <laughs> okay? For my sake. It's the, uh, it's the power of the Sangha. Then, you know, then even, even if you don't really mean it, other people will think that you are, and then it'll give you this. And we'll all feel better at the end of it, even though it's not true. Okay. Um, very often what happens, and that's what intensified and accelerated my own interest personally, and I'm hardly alone, um, because all of my early training was uh, in, in monastic situations all over Asia and here. And it, typically at the end of a retreat, people talk, now we're going back to the real world. By the way, this talk is often something like it is given the last day of a retreat. We do things backwards here. We give it on the first day of the retreat because we're trying to convey something. Uh, and if you're going back into the real world, then what is this? It's a good question, but it, it is a slice of life. It's not Disneyland. And even Disneyland is a, is a slice of life. Where are you going to go to escape life? It's everywhere. We're alive. Uh, we make up all these categories and labels and separate each other, and some we value and some we don't value and so forth. This is a very, very precious human invention. Um, we want to do our best to keep it alive, viable, and able to help people just as we've been helped. We're very grateful to our teachers, most of whom have been monks, and a few nuns, and a few lay people too. Um, and if we fixate on this, just as if we fixate on anything else, you create a divorce between an invaluable resource temp for, from periodically coming here and places like this for varying periods of time and dropping all your responsibilities. I know they still cook in your head, but you don't have them here and you can, you're being given tools to work with them in ways that are beneficial helpful, what we call skillful. So this is a very precious form, but if we anoint it in such a way as to seal it off from what happens when we leave here, for example, this is often referred to by staff as, uh, staff will refer, I don't know if they still do it, but in the old days they used to, um, the periodically staff will go on retreat and they'll say, I'm going into yogi land. Well, so what was it they were doing? You know, cooking, cleaning, washing. So that perspective to me is dangerous for us. Now, if you live in a monastery, that whole culture has been worked out over thousands of years. They do know what they're doing. And for some people, it really is a wonderful way of life. But although the original teachings of the Buddha are universal or they wouldn't be valuable, there's no point in us being here. It was the essence, for example, the Four Noble Truths, that uh, craving and attachment lead to suffering, or ignorance is the source of suffering. Uh, that isn't uh, a monopoly of, of, of uh, Buddhist, of Buddhism. Uh, and any reasonable person, if you reflect on it, it certainly has to have something to do with suffering. So the core of the teaching, and that there is possibilities uh, human beings can flower and that we're not using our full potential. We overuse certain potential at the expense of other aspects of being human. And we're paying for it bitterly, dearly. Perhaps that's why there's so much interest in all this. 
at least part of it. So uh, we want to protect this form, but not use it in such a way as it degrades everything that's other than this, uh, the real world, so-called real world, in quotes. There's only, as far as I can tell, there's only one world. It's real. And even when you're imagining some future, some virtual reality, that's what's happening now. That's how you're using your life energy. It's a fact. If you see that, then that's what practice is. You see how you're spending your life's energy. Okay, you want to do that? Fine. So we're trying to uh, upgrade. It's an attitudinal change, which may seem like, well, that isn't as important as all these techniques and methods and silence. I don't want to relate, the, I don't want to compare the two. But attitude is central because no matter how hard, because I've been at this a long time, so has Michael. Here's a typical exchange. We have interviews, people come in, let's say, at Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, and I'll say, you know, how's your practice going? It's an opener, opener, you know, for a chat. Uh, Oh, I didn't have a chance to sit too much this week. The baby was sick, and I had had to work overtime. I said, I didn't ask, I asked you how your meditation practice was going, not how your sitting went. Oh, in other words, no matter how hard we try, sitting is still considered to be it. And everything else, we get it, we hear it until it's coming out of our ears. Everything is practice, even the most vacuuming is practice, uh, cooking is practice. Yeah, all right, good, right. But sitting is really it, isn't it? Wink. No, we really mean it. Now, there are certain things that can be accomplished in sitting or, or maximize the potential for that. But if it uh, becomes isolated from the rest of life, uh, personally, I think. I'm speaking to you and not knowing most of you, you'll be disappointed. Because what happens is you can become like a hothouse plant, especially if you become good at this. Especially if you become good at this. Because you'll love it. You'll love to, ah, in, out, in, out, ah. Good feeling. I like this. This is good. Mm, Great. And I have plenty, five more days to go. Oh, wonderful. And then what, when the five days end? If you don't bring the, 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 the approach, the methods, the techniques, the values, the attitude into the rest of your life, uh, in fact, you w- it won't have juice. You won't really be that interested in the same way. There'll be tremendous energy to earn a living, to take care of your family, to take care of your health. That's all great. But this is asking, this is designed if done properly, at the same time that you're carrying out normal human responsibilities, activities, joys and sorrows, at the same time there can be a development of an interior depth. That's the whole point. So that this thing about spiritual and material, uh, so-called spiritual life, uh, worldly, those uh, to me are dichotomies invented by the mind. I don't like the word spiritual, although I know it's, I, you have to communicate with it. It's, you know, it's kind of, that person is really spiritual. Oh, they must be good, good person. That person, he's a nice guy, but not very spiritual. Uh, it makes a split. 
and it's it's picked up in the literature too. In other words, this the holy life. I, one time, one of the monks I was studying with talked about the holy life, which is which is used for the monastic life. And I heard, and finally, I, I can't help it, but the Brooklyn in me came out. I just said. Uh, you mean to say if I put on robes and shave my head and have one meal a day, etc., then I'm living the holy, then I'll be holy? I thought life was holy. Only if you relate to it in a certain way. And he said, oh, of course, of course, of course. But down deep, there's thousands of years of seeing the real thing go on by special people who have certain roles. Well, this is a challenge for us. Can we live our normal life? In other words, I live in Cambridge. I th- don't think when I look, I have a, you know, regular sweater. It's, I have a, a running shoes. I walk in, I sweatpants. You know, I'm a regular guy. A wife, a granddaughter. Who I'll tell you about in a few moments. <laughs> She's going to teach us tonight a little bit. Um, but inside, it's how we're relating to the same activity. For example, uh, the staff. I'm told love when uh, Michael and I teach here because we really emphasize yogi jobs. And we emphasize everything about the ordinary life going on here, how you dress, how you eat, um, wash, nothing left out. And we really hammer away at it. Um, we are sorry good parents. That if you didn't get that up, you got it when you were children, but we're giving it to you again. Um, does that mean we're trying to turn out happy workers? You know, it's sort of like, I don't know if you've ever seen these films, 1930s Soviet Union, they would have the happy factory worker, the happy dairy queen, you know, they'd be smiling and contributing to the people's, you know, the Soviet Socialist Republic Union of Socialist Socialist, whatever it used to be. And... Um, these are comrades working behalf of the people, and look how joyful they are, how happy she is milking the cow. And, you know, here he is making steel for the, uh, the workers of our wonderful Soviet Union, the comrades, and they're all terrific. Our goal is not that, or uh, so that labor, ma- so that, let's say management people come here and say, I think it is happening already. If not, it will. I know the military now wants to learn about mindfulness. So I'm sure it's an industry. It must be. Uh, how are we going to pr- get more productive, happy workers like the Soviet workers, who not only are more productive, but smiling all the time? No conflicts, no comparisons, reduction in pay, reduction in everything else, but they're happy anyway because they know how to follow their breath. Um, that is not the purpose. Certainly, the work of the world needs to get done. It's part of life. It's, if nothing else, it's hygiene. And we know how important hygiene can be. But when you do, let's say, fully vacuum, or when you fully sweep, or help washing the dishes, um, so there's a, there's a certain skills that are being asked of you. Uh, what is correct action? Uh, when you're sweeping. Well, it's to sweep. Pay attention to the dust. Use your broom, dustpan, and so forth. Sweep it up and put it in an appropriate uh, place. But you can uh, get that done and be an automatic pilot. People wash the dishes by hand 
I can do it. I, I did it all through childhood, all through teenage years. I, the dishes sparkle, and I have, I was, maybe 2% of me was there. I was, you know, with the New York Yankees, what was their next game, and meantime, my mother said, oh, wonderful, you did a good job, Larry. Yeah, right. Meantime, I was on a cloud somewhere else. So the, we can learn how to get the machinery oiled up and trained so it does the job, and what the Chinese call kill, we would kill life. That means when you're divided. The ancient Chinese Chan masters. They, when you're divided, they call that killing life. You don't go to prison for that. And when you're wholeheartedly, fully doing what it is you're doing, you're giving life to life. Now, it isn't just a nice verbal statement, because it's... It's a practice in the sense that as you do that more and more with each activity, something happens. You're re-educating you're re the mind. You're retraining the mind. So that, and not only that, it takes you deeper and deeper on an interior journey. So that outwardly, people looking at you, you may be the same person, look like the same person doing the dishes. But there's a, when uh, you're just doing the dishes means there's a no division, no separation. You're intimate with the activity, which means you're intimate with yourself. Intimate with yourself means you're intimate with life because you are life. Each one of us is a particular expression of that energy. So while you're doing so-called mundane things, at the same time, you're deepening your practice. Um, give you some examples. Uh, why, uh, for, for example, many years ago, I don't know how many years ago, I didn't know this, but I, I, I would come here for retreats and there'd be lots of people who had already been here. I would come earlier, much earlier in those days, and one day I inquired, wow, a lot of the yogis come here so early, I guess they want to get a head start on the retreat. And the manager at the time said, no, that isn't the reason, they want to get a soft yogi job. In other words, people then could just pick whatever job they wanted. So everyone would vie for, there used to be a lot where the offices, that was the library. Uh, everyone would want to be the person who dusted off the books. It would take approximately three seconds and then you can, you know, do what you want to do. No one would, and we didn't have a washing machine, so no one wanted that job or pots. Or we didn't want that. Um, and so people would come much earlier to get a soft job. And that was, and I heard about it. Now, I must say, I didn't make this up. I was trained. And in Japan, in Korea, um, you rotate through jobs, and often you get jobs that you... Also, any of you who have been in the military, I was. You learn to do things that you hate or that you really do, don't like. So we're not trying to... I'm not emulating, trying to emulate the military. It's just that here, the whole point is how, for life to become... Dharma practice, it means we have to relate to it in a new way. That means the normal people, of course you want an easier thing to do that's pleasant. Who wouldn't rather dust off the, bo the books than clean pots for an hour in the summer, summer retreats, sweat pouring off your brow? But here, we're learning how to relate to what happens in life because we don't, life, probably you've noticed, doesn't always obey the, our, our, our wishes. It seems to have a uh, insist on being exactly the way it is, 
and uh, it could care less about what our plans are, aspirations, ideals, and so forth. So, uh, or as Churchill put it, when he was asked, what is history? What is your philosophy of history? And he says, oh, just one damn thing after another. <laughs> well, isn't that so? Uh, so we're learning how to, so in that sense, life is the great teacher. But no, no students are signing up. That's the problem. The curriculum, depending on how you look at it, it's free or it's exorbitant. It asks a lot of us. It asks us to relate to life in a new way, to stop avoiding things that we've... Not to make this ridiculous, of course, we, if someone offers you two tomatoes, you're buying a tomato and one has a worm's head popping out of it and the other one is a nice, healthy, smiley tomato... Well, you see, we don't, uh, we're free of all that in Buddhism. I'll take the, the tomato with the worm. No, that, that's not the point. Uh, we're learning how to, of course, be uh, discerning. But also, often there are things in life that we don't have control over. So can we alter our I- inwardly so that what is problematic for all human beings becomes a source of liberation for us? It's weird, but there is actually a Dharma saying, a bad situation is a good situation. But only if you start to see it in a very different way. And so, the way it is now, I hope it is, I think it is, I always phone ahead, Um, you get the luck of the draw, whatever yogi job you've gotten, that's it, unless there's a medical reason, of course. And we've had some extraordinary examples in the past. We had an, an oral surgeon who drew cleaning toilets who refused. Uh, this was a two-week retreat many, many years ago. And the staff couldn't get him to do it, so they sent him up to me. So, uh, so I, I said, he said, you're not serious. The staff insists that I have to do clean the toilets. Uh, I said, no, it is part of, it's a part of the practice, very much so. It's not, it's not something that's optional unless there's a medical reason. And he said, look, I'm an oral surgeon. Do you know how many years of uh, education I have and blah, blah, blah? I said, well, that's nice. I'm impressed, but there's something else we're teaching here. And you have to do it. And you'd be surprised. It might turn out to be invaluable for you. He says, you mean to say if I don't do it, I have to leave the retreat? And I said, yes. It was a little chess match going on. But I did mean it. I said, yes. Because... If I make an exception, then the whole thing falls apart. Uh, and I, so I went through the trouble of explaining to him. He looked at me as if I was crazy, but he did it. And by the end of it, he, he learned so much. The art of living has everything to do with self-discovery. It has everything to do with self-discovery. How can you learn how to live and not get to know yourself? The problem in living is that we don't know ourselves too well. We think we do. We're very psychologically sophisticated. At least we talk a good game. Uh, So what happened at the end of the retreat, these are, of course, success stories. Otherwise, why they're testimonials. Uh, At the end of the retreat, he said, I saw how invested I was in my image as an oral surgeon and how degrading I experienced washing a toilet. But the, the instructions were, while you're washing the toilet, Feel it, become aware of how of resistance. It's just straight vipassana practice applied to a situation rather than in the hall. 
It's not a different instruction, except you're learning how to uh, maintain contact with your inner life while you're engaged in your outer life. And as you do this more and more, uh, stillness comes upon you. And then it's a kind of engaged stillness, where the mind, stillness here means clear. The mind has worked through so many of its likes and dislikes and residual suffering from childhood and all the rest of it. And you're able to, or when something comes up, resistance, you don't resist the resistance. You experience it. And poor resistance hates that. It loves it if you don't love it. But if you say, oh, resistance, hating washing the dishes, come on in, sit down, have a cup of tea. Uh, it, It doesn't know what to do. It goes crazy and it just falls apart. So the resistance may be there, but it's benign. It has no power. And then the whole experience of doing what you're doing has changed. It's not simply that you become more efficient. That's good. But the quality of your life changes because it's not in the vacuum cleaner or the dishes. It's in how you relate to, the, to what it is you're doing. Many years ago um, at Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, uh, we have these practice groups which meet once a week for a number of weeks, months. And a person came in and was exuberant. They were a cook. And they said, I chopped the broccoli today. Well, you know, we went around, why are you so happy? I said, well, I chopped the broccoli today. And it was 100% just chopping the broccoli. And it was such a joy to just chop the broccoli. Uh, and I, I understand now what, what the teachings are about. Now, does that mean we should all run and buy some broccoli? <laughs> and chop it, and there's no, there's no awakening in the broccoli. Broccoli is still just broccoli. It's a new way of relating to the same experience that anyone who has to chop broccoli does. But typically, uh, it's, the attitude is different. It's either very routine, let's say if you're a cook. Now, some people might enjoy it very much. That's fine. But there'll be other things that they don't. So this person used a bad situation to help free himself. There are others, I'd rather, I, I um, want to put in a plug for my granddaughter, Ilanya. I was going to show you 500 slides of her, <laughs> you know, different phases of learning how to move from crawling to walking, but Michael said I shouldn't. He didn't think it was a good idea. I also have some uh, home films about <laughs> learning how to, from crawling to walking. Uh, so instead of that, I'll just tell you about it. Why? What, what does this have to do with it? We paid good money to come to a meditation retreat. This guy is doing what I, I have to put up with all these proud grandparents when I'm home. You know, the Osher is intelligent and beautiful and kind and wise and the children love her and she eats well and she sleeps well and uh, it's the most extraordinary human being that was ever born. They're all over the place. Anyway, here's why. I learned this some years ago, but not the way I learned this. She's now three and a half. A while back when she was moving from crawling to walking, I happened to be around. And since I'm in the observing business, I was really watching. And she would get up and fall down, and get up and fall down, and get up and fall down, and get up and fall down. 
and there was a joyful look on her face. It wasn't sort of like, ah, the three-and-a-half-year-old kid next door, he's already walking, and not only that, the Harvard Medical School doctors say by three-and-a-half, I, I should have been walking by three and two months. You know, I'm behind the norm here. You know, they drive parents crazy with these norms. Everyone's supposed to fit into these norms, and so uh, she didn't have any of that. She was just alert. Everything was new to her. She was learning how to walk. And then she took a few steps, and of course, we, a, round, a round of applause, and everyone went crazy. And uh, this is a Russian family, Russian Jewish. They celebrate everything, you know. Uh, one step and uh, cake and wine and prune, da- prune danishes and coffee and send out for some Chinese food. And, uh, uh, so in watching, I saw, wow. And it wasn't just that. It was everything was new to her. She was enjoying learning. Uh, I say it for a reason because it was very inspiring to me. And in watching her now since then, of course, uh, we see her learn. Everything is interesting. So many things are. And little by little, we're making her as neurotic as ourselves. You know, we're, uh, we're creating another deluded human being, uh, and it's just we can't help it. And then in about 15 or 20 years, she'll probably get shipped off here and go to a therapist and all the rest of it. <laughs> but uh, it just seems to be the norm at this time. Um, what I saw, why can't, why, do, why is learning not have that joy for us? And so, uh, if you remember the first evening, Michael, you mentioned the word learning, inquiry, investigate. In other words, it isn't just a, a fixed set of techniques. We're not training you to be gas station attendants. Not that that's a, meaning, a terrible job. It's just, it's not a mechanical thing. Although there are trainings that we have to go through, like the breath. And I'll go, I, in a few minutes we have left, I'll, I'll go through that. But what if you uh, take it on? And of course, we're not going to be like a three and a half year old. But let's say the next time when you have breakfast, come to breakfast with, uh, as if for the first time. Take a look at it. How do I eat breakfast? How do I sweep a floor? How do I do that? And it's like any craft or art. Uh, we do it wrong a lot to begin with. And in, in my 79 years on this strange planet, there are a few things that I think I've learned. One, uh, one of the things I've learned is a, a difference among people. There are some people, everyone makes mistakes and screws up. I haven't met anyone yet. Everyone's been damaged in childhood, etc., etc. Some people learn from their mistakes and really care and want to learn. And others don't, or learn very little. If you're here, we assume that you care, that you care about the quality of your life. Why else would you be here? I mean, if you're here for, for if you don't care about the quality of your life, there, this, well, maybe that's one way to come here to make yourself miserable. Might, maybe I, I, I had it wrong. Bad example. But in order to learn, um, and as the instructions, for those of you who knew, expand, you'll see that uh, we're, and you'll see the relationship of the sitting to everything else. But I, for tonight, just a, a, bit, a little bit of a hint. But let's take uh, the sitting practice, for example, um, that we've been doing, just the breath. 
no insights. They're not practicing officially vipassana meditation yet. This is sometimes called shamatha, calming, steadying the mind. It becomes samadhi, a very steady, stable mind. Very, very useful. Because we're encouraged to investigate, to learn, to pay attention, and uh, to learn from from our life. If your mind, in order to do that, the mind has to be fit to do that. There are a lot of very beautiful instructions, if you read them in the Buddha's original teachings. But realistically, you can't do them until the mind gets to a certain place of stability where it can actually see with some clarity, with some accuracy. Um, I was thinking the other uh, other day about uh, Galileo, uh, when his big uh, demonstration that uh, we don't revolve around the earth, everything doesn't revolve, the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, the earth revolves around the, the sun. And that was known before him by many others, but technology came in. And once there was a telescope, it could be demonstrated. And he, he was effective, even though he went through hell, he was effective because the technology helped him not only see more clearly, but enabled others to see what he had seen. Now, the Buddha is, is in, in the teaching of the Buddha, he is not saying to believe what I say. We'll go into this a bit next time, perhaps. He's saying, discover what I say. He's saying, I discovered this from my practices over years. I discovered that this is how suffering comes about. This is how we can relieve ourselves from it. I'm not telling you to believe that, although tentatively, please take it on. Otherwise, where's the energy going to come to test it? But I'm asking you to discover and to confirm, is it true? What I'm telling you that I discovered in my life, is it true for you? It's a different attitude altogether. The Buddha is often referred to as the great world physician. I think he was also a great world educator. Not that the two are separate. So, and the the invention of the microscope, the telescope, uh, or the ability to see all the new... Diseases have been wiped out. All kinds of remarkable things have happened with technology. Uh, It's odd. For us, we need technology too. But we're both the telescope and the stars. We're the whole thing. In other words, it's, to me, still odd. We're learning how to train the mind so it can look into itself and see how it's functioning and unlearn what needs to be unlearned because it's dysfunctional. It's producing suffering for itself and others. And to allow and learn how to uh, bring to fruition qualities that are beneficial. And this comes about, Vipassana means seeing, clear seeing, insightful seeing, seeing into, inner seeing. Probably all of us here are pretty good, maybe very good at something out external or some realm where we're expert at. This is, again, a skill. It's an art. It's the art of living, and it starts with us, and it ends with us. And we learn a lot of it. Now, when we sit with the breath, in, out, in, out, in, out. We're fashioning the mind in such a way, if you knew, you may not trust this yet, but it's lawful. It will happen if you stick with it. The mind does become more calm. It does become more serviceable. It becomes a a fit instrument of inquiry. I'm sorry to use that term, but it's not that bad. 
so that so that you can start to see more accurately. Because if your mind is wild and it's trying to look at a, at, at wildness, uh, it's it's futile. It's like a distorted mirror. You know, like when I grew up near Coney Island, they would have these mirrors. You'd walk in there and you look. You know, you look like. Uh, you were the same person, the mirror was distorted. Well, awareness is often likened to a clear mirror in the Buddhist teaching. Right now, our mirror isn't clear, perhaps. So it's what the Chinese call dusting off the mirror. We're doing that. All the different aberrations that we are so invested in, which have their time and place, but not in order to see how we actually live. The learning goes on all day long if you uh, get into it. And that's, of course, what we're going to keep uh, impressing upon you, doing our best anyway. Because this ability to pay attention isn't just developed on the breath in a very simplified, protected situation in the hall. Every time you're mindful, a moment of mindful here, mindfulness here, a moment there, you're developing an instrument that can see clearly and accurately and enables you to learn things that you couldn't learn without it. You just won't. You'll read the teachings. There's some beautiful teachings in the Buddhas, uh, in, the, in the discourses, and you might get teary-eyed because the, intellectually it's so satisfying. And it's helpful. It's not a waste of time. But it's designed to get us to do work on ourselves so that we can see that the, the, that the sun doesn't resolve, revolve around us. Hey, that's not too bad. We think that it does. By us, I don't mean Earth, I mean me. I am the most important person in the world, aren't I? How about you? You are too. So um, that's, so there's a reason why we're, if you can bring a new attitude or at least learn how to, um, how to shepherd in a new attitude of looking at the same life that every human being faces in everything. It's a way of life. It isn't just collecting a bag of techniques and going home and then doing it, you know, 45 minutes in the morning, 45 minutes and then going to cocktail parties and telling people you're a big meditator and all that stuff. And then trying to make them into Buddhists, whatever that is. So um, that's it. So didn't Ilanya do a good job of teaching? I have to, she's not old enough to appreciate, but later on I'll tell her when she has to come to a retreat like this, because I'll, I'll be in yogi heaven by then, <laughs> looking down and smiling. Maybe. Okay. Could we have a few moments of silence? continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Okay, let's keep the observing mind alive as we do some walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.